Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And if you are new here, or if you are visiting, or if you are returning after a long time, we do want to extend a special welcome to you. And again, if there are any questions that you may have, any comments or any concerns, please talk to myself or to any one of the other elders after service is over. Uh, Josh was up here. He was an elder. I'm here. Uh, Pastor Dave is around. But talk to any one of us. If for whatever reason you may feel uncomfortable approaching one of us in person, you can always send us an email as well. Just give us a day or two to reply to it. But we are here for you, and we want to make sure that you know that those channels of communication are open. Now, at this time, I do invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 2 and verse 36 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38 is our passage today. That's on page 858. If you are using the church Bible, page 858. <coughs> Luke chapter 2 and verse 36. I initially had these three verses tied into last Sunday's sermon, but I felt that this woman in our passage and the text itself uh, deserved its own message. And so before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and we thank you um, that you've given us this church family. And as we turn to your word, would you give us ears to hear, uh, a soft heart of understanding, uh, a humility to receive what you have for us? Would you teach us to number our days, God, and, and give to us perspective on, on what it is that really matters in this life? And and would you give us by our grace great joy in you and in Jesus Christ, that by the Holy Spirit you would cause your word to bear much fruit in our lives. We ask that you would help us to know and understand just how much it is that you love us. All for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus is born in, in poverty, uh, obscurity, and, and in an abject humility. He's born not in the way that many of us would have wanted our children to arrive into the world. He's born into a people group who are under foreign domination. His mother, an unwed pregnant teenager, his earthly father, a carpenter. Jesus' first crib is a manger, which is intended for animal usage, not newborn usage. And his young family, they qualify for low-income religious sacrifices because they are poor. And there are no recorded friends and family to welcome him, no balloons and flowers. His first visitors are a bunch of dirty shepherds on the graveyard shift who are excluded from much of religious life because they are considered to be in the category of unclean. And it is as if no one cares to even take notice at this child's entry into the world. And if these were the only facts surrounding the birth of Jesus, there would be no one who could ever conclude that this child would ever be the Son of God. But while Jesus is born in this kind of humility, Luke also lays out for us testimony after testimony to the true identity of this child in the manger. Prophecy is being fulfilled and new prophecy is being proclaimed. Miraculous conceptions have been occurring for both the forerunner and the Messiah himself. Angels appear suddenly in the midnight sky, the entire host of them in all of their ranks, and they are surrounded by the shining glory of God as they sing praises to Yahweh for the birth of this very child. 
And it is most recently in the immediate verses preceding our passage that an older gentleman named Simeon, whom we know almost nothing about, career-wise, marital status, finances, where he lived. These are the only verses he appears in the entire Bible. We know almost nothing about him except for what is most important, that he is righteous and devout. He is waiting for the consolation of God's people, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit. We find this man laying eyes on this baby Jesus and carrying him, and as a result of beholding this child in person, he cries out and he confesses, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. I could die right now. My life is utterly complete in merely seeing him. He knew that this baby is Yahweh's long-awaited salvation for the nations. And everything that Simeon has lived for and hoped for and banked his life upon is found within this child. He is God's salvation. And so Simeon brings to Jesus the honor that he is due in a testimony to who he is. And then we begin to piece together more and more that this child can be none other than the very Son of God. And more and more we are seeing this, this union of glory and humility in the person of Jesus, this, this paradox of highness and lowness, which is indicative of the incarnation, which is God becoming man, and this hypostatic union that Jesus is both truly human, and yet at the same time he is truly divine. But Simeon is not alone, and in our text today we find another person who is another witness, this time a woman who likewise has been longing for God's salvation to come, and they form together a, a pair of testimonies to the person of Jesus. We read in verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. <coughs> she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. We are introduced here to a woman whose life, at least on first glance, is not a life that many people would envy. It sounds like a biography of tragedy more than it sounds like anything else. This is not the dream scenario that you would initially want to have for your daughters or for your sisters. Anna had been married, and she had enjoyed her husband for seven short years before he had died, and Anna had never remarried but lived as a widow either until she was the age of 84 or she lived as a widow for 84 years. The original text can go either way. In any case, her seven years of companionship seemed like but a week compared to the 60-ish to 84-year-ish widow of window, window of widowhood. We find no mention of children or extended family to take care of us, take care of her, and this isn't 2021. I mean, we live in an era of single, independent women being celebrated and multiple opportunities being afforded to them. That is not the case with this woman, Anna. Ancient Palestine in the first century did not give to a widowed woman a great amount of respect or earning power. First century Judaism didn't even allow a woman to receive the same amount of instruct, instruction from the Torah as a man could. You can't learn the Bible like a man can. Alfred Edersheim in his studies of first century history found that 
the Jewish people even, did not think a woman's mind was adapted for a high level of learning. That's not the Bible's view, but that was Jewish culture in the first century. And even in the temple, the women were restricted to an area of it called the women's court, and they could not enter into the inner courts where many ceremonies were being performed. According to Josephus, women and slaves, they could not even give evidence in court because their testimony would not be considered valid. Widows were also especially frequently singled out for shady people to take advantage of because without anyone to protect them or vouch for them, they made for an easy target. This is why many women would seek to get remarried very quickly. And since Anna had lost her husband at such a young age, remarriage was definitely on the table, and she would likely be encouraged and even pressured to pursue it as soon as possible because her identity was found in relationship to a husband and what he could provide for her and what he could give to her since she would not have the opportunity for higher education or trade or the ability to build financial stability. A woman's identity was also bound up in her ability to bear children, which this woman could not do respectfully without remarriage. And so a childless widow in the first century usually experienced a very trying and very difficult life without many to look out for her. And government assistance at this time was lacking. It's not like it is today. This is part of the reason why Paul writes in 1 Timothy about how the church ought to support genuine, godly, and productive widows who don't have a family because the burden of a widow was too much to be carried alone. Now, in addition to all of this, the text says that Anna is also of the tribe of Asher. Asher is one of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. Israel split after King Solomon into the northern and southern kingdom. And these northern tribes were taken into captivity by the Assyrians about 700 years prior to the first century, which means that Anna's tribe and her people and her lineage are very few and very far between, which likely added even more pressure for her to get married again and have some babies, which she never did do. And so in the very opening verses of our passage, we are introduced to a woman whose life, at least on first glance, is not a life that many people would envy, but is instead apparently one full of sorrow and loneliness. <coughs> but this is not Anna's entire story. While she did not give herself to another husband, she gave herself to something else. Look at verse 37 again. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. While Anna had been subjected by the providence of God to a very difficult life, rather than growing bitter towards God or bitter towards other people, rather than being consumed with what-ifs and regret and shaking her fists up in the air, Anna does not turn away from God, but she instead turns toward her God even more that the words of Psalm 68, 5, where God is called father of the fatherless and protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. The words of that psalm are actualized in her life day by day. It is as if her longing for her Lord eclipsed her longing for anything else. And her difficult trials in this life from even her 20s drove her into a deeper devotion to God. And Anna becomes this woman of great worship. 
without a husband to tend to and children to take care of and a home to keep up with. She gives herself wholly to worship in the temple to get as close to the very presence of God as possible. In our household, the one living thing that loves me the most is our dog, Kula. And uh, right when I pull up into the driveway, she hears my truck, and she runs to the front door. And right when I open it just a crack, she sticks her head out of it before I can even get in. When I'm walking around the house, she often weaves in between my legs as I walk. She trips me sometimes. She's not the smartest dog. (laughs) But she's just trying to be as near to me as possible. And when I eat, she lies on my feet. She leans against my shins. And, And at night, when we shut the door to our bedroom and get ready for bed, I hear a loud thunk. And it's Kula throwing her body on that door and pushing up against it so she can get as close to us as she possibly can. That's a somewhat crude illustration of love. But frankly, here it is. Anna's throwing her body as close as she can to the very center of the place that represents the presence of Yahweh. I mean, she loves her God more than a dog loves its master. And it's not a duty for her. This is not some response to some guilt trip some preacher gave to her. Well, I guess I better go to church then, get this monkey off my back. No, but her genuine desire in this life is to be in the very presence of her God and in the presence of his people, so much so that she basically lived at the temple. And it's somehow by the severe providence of God in her life that Anna becomes this woman of great worship and love for Yahweh, not using her suffering as an excuse to run away from him and live all the more loosely, because who cares? But that suffering seems to drive her all the more to draw near to him. And brothers and sisters, her life is a lesson for us as well, that no matter what amount of suffering that the sovereign decree of God brings you to experience that while he may very well withhold certain things on this earth and in this life from you, he does not withhold himself. And our God is more than enough for every need that you will ever have if you would just press into him. There's a special worship within the heart of this woman, Anna. And Anna also becomes this woman of great prayer, the text says. I, I think this does refer to her communion with God, her speaking to him, her reveling in him. But I also think that this is her expression of what her deepest desires are in this life. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what she's praying. But when you couple her with Simeon, who's looking for the consolation of God's people, longing to see the Messiah before he dies, I think Anna's prayer life as well is such that she is this persistent widow knocking on God's door, so to speak, to fulfill your word and bring your Savior God. And living a life of much suffering in this broken planet that loves to take advantage of the powerless like widows, I am sure that her desire for consolation and her desire for a better kingdom fueled her communication to her God in such a way that she longed for the Christ to come. I want the perfect king. I want the true deliverer. And I want this more than I long for any kind of earthly husband to keep me company for a few years. And as a widow who has lived this amount of time in the first century experiencing sexism, ageism, unfair treatment, iniquity, Anna is not naive. She's well aware of what it is that's in the human heart and the sins of her nation 
and the sins of the world. Anna, no doubt, has been on the receiving end of so much of it, and the solution to her pain and her suffering is not a man or some kids or a career or some more cash, but her greatest desire is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I'm pretty sure that Anna's prayer life has been filled with communion with her God, no doubt. But I think it's also filled with much mourning and yearning for a better kingdom and a better king, which God had promised from centuries past. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, would you bring him now? Can you imagine six decades or eight decades of prayer night and day? How much you actually have to believe in prayer? How much you actually have to believe in the God of prayer? We got a prayer meeting once a month for about 30 minutes. And I'm more and more convinced that God gives to Anna the specific life he gave to her so that she might be the one to beseech God for decades, day and night, so that he would answer those prayers and allow herself to be one of the very first witnesses to the final answer to all of her longings and desires. That's real ministry. We often view real ministry as, as people doing this or as the preacher preaching that or as the leader leading this, something tangible, something we can me measure, something we can see and feel. And so we celebrate missionaries, and rightfully so, pastors who preach through the entire Bible within their lifetimes. But what do you think brings a preacher? What do you think sends workers into the harvest field? But the one who quietly, on their hands and on their knees, morning and night, are asking God to bring the fulfillment of everything which he has promised. There are going to be quite a few Annas, I think, that we will meet in the next world, that we will find were the very catalyst of what God accomplished in this world. And we will see then, and only then, I think, that a life spent in prayer is one of the greatest lives that any of us could have ever lived. I know that the providence of God in our church family has created a few more widows in these past few years. And I'm not in your shoes. <coughs> and there are quite a few singles within our church for whatever reason God has not provided a spouse for. And I would encourage you from this text that perhaps God is calling you to become a person of even greater worship and greater prayer. And it may very well be that in a thousand years from today, you will actually come to a place to thank God that he decreed exactly what it is that he has decreed so that you could be focused in a way that you were focused in. And so Anna, she's a, she's a woman of great prayer. We also see here that Anna is also a woman of great self-denial in her fasting. It's very easy to become distracted and very easy to have our eyes diverted and to focus on other things rather than the main thing. <clears throat> There's a, a prime restaurant, a prime rib restaurant in Los Angeles called Lowry's. I don't know if you've ever been there. And... Uh, you walk into this dark hallway and there's a waiting room off to the left that you can sit in while they get your table ready or if you get there a little bit earlier than your reservation. And there's these fancy metal heated bowls. One is full of meatballs and the other is full of freshly fried potato chips. Not from the bag. They, they slice the potatoes and fry them. 
And when you put them together on the same plate, the juices and the sauce of the meatballs leak onto the chips, and the combo is pretty dang delicious. <laughs> and if you're hungry and they take a while to seat you, you can get full just off those meatballs and chips. And then when the prime rib cart comes around, because they bring the prime rib to you, they don't cut it in the back. They bring it to you and they slice it fresh in front of your face so the juices are still locked in. At that point, you might not have any appetite for it because you got full off the cheap stuff. And there are many believers who are distracted and have their eyes diverted whose, whose appetite, frankly, for the coming kingdom of God has been filled up by a bunch of meatballs and potato chips. Uh, good stuff, but not the great stuff. And it's often the good, which is the very enemy of the best. And we can craft these weird idols out of God's gifts and make an idolatry out of family. This is a, this is a thing right here or career, or creature comforts, or where I'm going to live, and what I'm going to eat, and what angle, a picture I'm going to take of the food that I eat, and who I'm going to marry, and how many kids, and what should we name them, and how can I daydream about their lives as well? How can I maximize my financial portfolio? Whatever it is that you daydream about, that that diversion and that distraction is just enough to make our appetite for the coming of Jesus Christ a little bit less with each successive bite that we take. So much so that if we were to actually find out Christ were coming back again next week, we might actually be a little bit disappointed. Not yet, God. I just got a smoker. I didn't even fire her up yet. I didn't get my summer body yet. My kitchen isn't done being remodeled. Can we just wait until I see what college my kids get into? Can we reschedule that? Can we just postpone it for a little bit? And it can happen to any of us. But what we have in this portrait of Anna, this godly woman, is, is one of great self-denial, the meatballs and potato chips of this life, how to stay available and attractive just in case Mr. Wright comes walking along. I mean, even her day-to-day -day meals, she doesn't want that physical appetite to always be met so that her spiritual appetite for the coming of Jesus Christ would be that much greater. And this is something that is entirely voluntary. No one's forcing her to do this. This isn't a pharisaical command. She's doing this voluntarily. And it is entirely wise. It is entirely godly, the self-denial that her greatest desire would more and more be only able to be met by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That her marital status... Her lack of children, her bank account info, her looks, her career would be less and less of what it is that actually defines her as a person and that more and more being a woman longing for the Christ would captivate her attention more than anything else. Now this life of worship <coughs> and this pattern of prayer and her ongoing self-denial, it, it didn't just happen in a blink of an eye after a spiritual moment or post-retreat or following some big conference. Now, this pattern of living had lasted between 60 and 80-ish years consistently as godliness, this single-mindedness for decades. Paul has a commentary on this kind of life in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, himself being unmarried, that the married one's focus is always divided. Got to make the spouse happy. 
got to think about worldly issues and God. While the unmarried can be free from these kinds of anxieties so that the unmarried one can focus even more so on how to please the Lord. <coughs> and this position in life is such that Paul actually wishes more people were unmarried for this very purpose. Not being married. It's not a curse. It can be a great blessing if you, in a self-denying way, can channel your attention on the very best things. And being married is not a curse either. It's a good gift from God as long as the good does not become the enemy of the best. And so Anna is this very remarkable and truly godly woman who has been purified in the refining fires of God's own providence so that her momentary life on this earth would look more and more like the gold that it truly is. And sometimes it is that what initially looks like tragedy and a life that on first glance we wouldn't envy or want, if we look a little bit and dig a little bit deeper, I mean, brothers and sisters, don't you envy this kind of devotion? Don't you want this kind of single-mindedness for yourself and for the people that you love? Anna is a model for us in so many ways. We continue in verse 38. And coming up <coughs> at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That very hour is the hour that Simeon is holding Jesus in his arms and and declaring his satisfaction in this life because I got to see God's salvation come. The child is here. The Messiah is here. And Anna, just like Simeon, at that very same moment, she arrives onto the scene and she takes it in with her eyes and she hears Simeon's words with her ears and she immediately looks to God and starts to give thanksgiving. And Anna and Simeon together, they function as <coughs> a pair of twin witnesses. We have these two godly old covenant saints looking into the face of the new. We have two Old Testament people, so to speak, who've been longing for the coming of the Messiah, and they finally get to see him face to face. Simeon's satisfaction, this is enough for me. I could depart this life right now. Anna, after decades of suffering, longing, prayer, fasting, worship, self-denial, my heart is not filled with bitterness, but with gratitude because this is the very thing that I wanted the most. And both of these witnesses had their cups filled to the brim, and both of their testimonies embody a lesson for us all, that our heart's desires, even when tragedy may hit, our hearts can only be made full in Jesus Christ. A new spouse isn't going to fulfill you. Ask any newly married person after a year or two, a life lived of chasing this or that, it's not going to ever satisfy you. But our God is so vast that even if we gave the entirety of our lives in worship, even if we missed a few meals or lived all our days exploring out there, trying to find something new, that's what Solomon did. And what was the conclusion to Ecclesiastes? God, 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 that by the time we hit our 80s and 90s and 100s, God's is so vast that we can reflect upon a life given wholly to him and actually build with thanksgiving that that is how our life had been spent. Matthew 13, 44 says it better 
The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Simeon and Anna, this is them in our passage. Jesus is their great treasure. Jesus is their one pearl of great value, and the entire world is lost on them. Now notice that Anna is called a prophetess in our passage, which means that she is someone who speaks on behalf of God. <clears throat> in Jewish tradition, there are seven prophetesses, but really only five are found in the Old Testament. And while it's not an office like that of Isaiah or Jeremiah, God at certain points chose to speak forth his revelation through a very select few women who were given the rare privilege and honor of proclamation. Now, this is where I think our passage gets even more interesting because Luke doesn't record a single thing that Anna even says. We don't have a direct quote at all. All we have is this description of her single-hearted worship of God and her satisfaction and gratitude and contentment and joy in seeing Jesus the Christ's arrival. We know more about her life than we do about her words. I mean, we heard Simeon's words last Sunday. He ain't a prophetess. And yet Anna is one. And Luke presents her life, not her words. As a prophetess, Anna's words are almost inconsequential because her life and her devotion and her satisfaction and enjoyment in Jesus is what gives her words that oomph. And it is the same for us. Our actual devotion to God will often speak a lot louder than the words which come out of our mouth. And it is the same devotion to Jesus Christ which is our greatest act of worship to him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What's the point of life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper, he makes the argument that the way, the actual way we glorify God is by enjoying him. That God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Brothers and sisters, we can't fake satisfaction. We can't fake joy, ultimately. Your thoughts will always float to the very thing that you think you need to be satisfied. A bigger place to live. 15% raise. Kids who actually listen to me and get better grades. Or hit more shots or run faster laps. That's going to make me happy. Your desire for this or that to be happy preaches that Jesus Christ is just not enough. But when a woman like Anna who has no husband, no money, no children, no career, no young body starts to speak of him who, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, what the watching world sees is true joy and this deep satisfaction that this woman, in their minds, you got nothing to be happy about. You should have zero satisfaction in life. Look at your life, and yet you have it, which actually then gives great glory to God, that though I have nothing, I have everything. Look at what is mine. What I lost is dust on the scales by comparison, 
which preaches that the glory of Jesus Christ is real. And it preaches a lot more than mere words sometimes can often preach. I wonder if you ever thought of your own satisfaction in God as being your greatest worship of God. That your joy in Jesus Christ and your devotion to him is actually what gives Jesus the honor and the glory which is due. That when the watching world witnesses in the eye of you, the beholder, looking at Jesus, this beauty seen, they will understand more and more this value of this treasure and the price of this pearl. But on the flip side, it can look quickly like a sham if while we sing about Christ and talk about Christ, Our mouths are covered in potato chip crumbles and meatball sauce. Then no one's going to look at your Savior. Some of us have made meatballs a prime rib. And the prime rib, the potato chips. Now, church family, Simeon and Anna, all they have at this point is is a month-old baby. That's it. They know nothing at this point of what we know. They were satisfied with a fraction of what we have today. And Anna's life is worshipful, prayerful, full of self-denial for this first coming of Jesus. How much more should the church be now? We have way more than they ever had. We have seen the life of Christ, how he reaches out to the poor and marginalized, how he touches a leper, how he calls a prostitute, how he heals the blind. He makes the blind see. He makes the deaf hear. We've seen the cross of Jesus Christ where he bleeds and he dies for the sins of me and you. We've seen the resurrection of Christ where he conquers the power of both sin and death. And by bursting forth, he proves that God's wrath has been satisfied. There's no more wrath left for me and you. We've seen the ascension of Christ where he sits now at the right hand of God to intercede for us. And he will return soon for his bride, the Bible calls his church, bride. Because that's the only word that can describe the amount of love that Jesus has for us. How much more should our satisfaction be and our joy feel and our lives preach and our mouths proclaim to speak of Jesus to all who are waiting for redemption? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for sending us your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you give us the eyes of Anna and that of Simeon, that we might actually evaluate properly this gift of grace you've given to us. I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would take your word and plant it deep down into us, that it wouldn't return void, that it wouldn't be on shallow or rocky soil. I pray, Lord, that you would bear fruit 30, 60, 100-fold. I pray, God, that you would captivate us again and again by your love for us so that we might love you more and more and give ourselves to you like you have given yourself to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.